I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 12th, 2011. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work, the politically incorrect thing. We name names, and we let you hear what people are saying and go, well, is that what God's Word really says? And... um, and just because somebody's popular or um, has a huge church or is a multi-million dollar best-selling Christian author doesn't get them off the hook. In fact, many times what we've been finding out is, is that uh, the most popular people in the visible church, many of them are the ones who are um, mangling, twisting the message, uh, mangling God's word, and uh, making it say things that it, it just don't say. And uh, so as a result of it, we've got to do the Berean work, and uh, why? Because uh, false doctrine actually matters. It sends people to hell. So, all right, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we're, it, you know, it's, I'm looking at the, what's on the docket here, and uh, how do I... <sighs> um, last Friday, I, I did a, a program uh, regarding, well, Mark Driscoll's uh, views regarding um, uh, well, uh, well, cessationist versus continuationism and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I've, like I said, I've uh, requested uh, an interview with uh, Driscoll, but I told everybody, you know, you know, the chances of me actually landing that interview, well, not so good. Uh, and uh, so far, no response. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not holding my breath because I think if I held my breath, I might die. 
But uh, you know, I'll maybe pass out and then start breathing again. But I think that's how that works. But uh, so one of the things we're going to be doing today is uh, uh, kind of continuing with this topic. And uh, what I mean by that is is that um, um, there's a blog out there called Here I Blog. And um, at the uh, Here I Blog um, website, it's hereiblog.com, um, they've uh, got some sound bites of Mark Driscoll regarding, uh, well, prophetic revelation. And uh, it's one of these things where I just, uh, I'm going to play it for you and uh, ask you what you make of it, because um, it's um, different. Yeah, that's all I can say. It's 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 um different. Uh, now, I, for two days now, I've been threatening to uh, get to the uh, news story from Albert Mueller about evangelicals and the gay moral revolution. We're going to get to that today. I've got news uh, that I've been sitting on. Um, the, the Associated Press news story reads: Lutheran split over gays in the Bible shakes up multi-billion-dollar social services network. Now, um, we're coming up. You know, it's it's uh, well. Uh, Matthew Harrison, the uh, current president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has been in office now for uh, the better part of a year, but not quite a year. And um, and uh, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, has kind of rankled people uh, is uh, the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's association with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in several different ways. Um, chaplaincy, social services, and things like that, a military chaplaincy. And uh, now that uh, I think that um, Matthew Harrison has got his footing, uh, he's, um, well, severed ties with the ELCA. And actually, I consider this to be a good thing. Um, This is an example of what good, strong, solid, biblical leadership looks like. And so uh, we're going to be reading the uh, the AP News story regarding that uh, and uh, take a look at that. Um, I've got more email that I want to take a look at regarding the Eric Dykstra thing. And then in hour number two today, in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a good sermon. We're going to be listening to a good sermon uh, by Jeremy Rohde at uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And uh, we've heard some really rotten sermons uh, from the uh, gospel accounts of Peter, uh, of Jesus walking on the water, uh, the disciples being freaked out, Peter asking if he can come and walk out to Jesus, and uh, and you know all kinds of really bad sermons saying, well, you got to get out of the boat if you're going to walk on water and stuff like that. And uh, I thought this would be a good counter to uh, what we heard yesterday. And uh, yesterday's uh, sermon uh, by Dan Sutherland, I kept asking the question. Who is this sermon about? Who is this sermon about? Um, it wasn't about Jesus. Dan Sutherland wasn't preaching about Jesus, like, far from it. Um, he was preaching about himself. And that's kind of the difference, is uh, when, you know, what you, you hear the phrase kicked around, Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered preaching. And, um, and if it's truly Christ-centered, then it actually is centered on Christ. Um, I know that sounds like so basic, but uh, just because somebody's claiming that their sermon is Christ-centered doesn't make it Christ-centered. If it's going to be Christ-centered, it actually has to center in on Jesus and what he has done for us. And so uh, this sermon that we're going to be playing by Jeremy Rohde today uh, does a fantastic job of of focusing 
us on Christ in the story of Jesus walking on the water. And uh, and so uh, I will be playing that because um, it shows, it, and, and one of the things you'll notice right off the bat is, is that everything is flipped up on its head. Everything is upside down, backwards, and inside out compared to the normal way you would hear this sermon preached or this text preached. So um, th- yeah, that'll be a, an hour number two, a good sermon by Jeremy Rohde. And I mean, a model sermon on how to how to take a biblical text about Jesus and keep us focused on Jesus. And you'll you'll see that he even uh, takes the you know takes a little bit of liberty as far as how he's applying the text and engages in a little bit of allegory. Now, a smidge of it is okay, um, and that's what Jeremy Rohde does here. But he he doesn't allegorize it the way you would normally see it, somebody do it. And uh, he then, you know, it, he he immediately gets back into the text after the the so-called metaphorical allegorization, you know, dealing with the um, the storms in life that, that we all face. And then he just drives home the point about Jesus using that text, what's in the text, as well as bringing other texts to bear. That it's, it's just fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. So um, that'll be. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll, maybe we'll ask the question today. Who is this sermon about? And uh, yeah, I think you will find that it isn't about me or isn't about you. It's about Christ, which is what a sermon really should be about. So um, we've got lots of ground to cover. You know, by the way, kind of, kind of by way of uh, a note, um, I have been regularly checking back to uh, the to William Tapley's uh, channel there on YouTube. Uh, you can find it at youtube.com forward slash Third Eagle Books. Uh, YouTube.com forward slash Third Eagle Books. And uh, he has not put up a new video since July 22nd. I, I'm hoping that the Third Eagle is okay. Um, he does this from time to time where he you know, he has stretches where he doesn't put YouTube videos together. And uh, I, I don't know what he's doing. I, I, I wish he would repent because uh, he you know his stuff is just like crazy. Um, but uh, every time I hope that that's what he's doing, it turns out that he isn't. So... Anyway, you just want, I just want to let you know, it's been a while since we've had a third Eagle of the Apocalypse update, and the reason being is because he hasn't updated his YouTube channel since the 22nd. The last, and the last video he has up there is like part three of this com- comment Elenin thing, and yeah, and <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> we've already done common Elenin, and um, there's no point in going back and doing that one again. Anyway, so let's dive into the program proper, and uh, let's take a look at some more email regarding Eric Dykstra. All right, this email comes uh, to us from Walter in Hanover, Maryland. Walter in Hanover, Maryland. He writes, Chris, thank you again for exposing the dangers of the Dykstras and other seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven pastors. In the early 80s, I was a full-blown, word-of-faith preacher. Fortunately, into the glory of God, I have been delivered from that, and I can honestly say that I vociferously defend the faith against that philosophy. Um, Walter, 
you know, the way you put it is absolutely right, is that God delivered you from that. And and that's what really happens is, is that God delivers folks from these false teachings. And uh, and many times God uses other people to do that. I, I personally, uh, when I was a young lad, I got caught up in the uh, New Apostolic stuff. My wife and I both uh, you know, took a try, uh, a, a, you know, a ride on kind of the uh, the crazy Patricia King gang uh, train, and God, uh, you know, graciously delivered that us out of that uh, via the uh, just the patient and loving, kind work of a of a lay woman at uh, at a Aurora Nazarene Church in Seattle, Washington. So, but you're right; that's the way to describe it. God delivers you from this. So he says, as an observer of the word of faith and more recently the seeker-sensitive purpose-driven movements, I've noticed something. Have you noticed how most of the word of faith preachers sound the same? If you listen to Creflo Dollar, you hear Kenneth Copeland. If you listen to Charles Caps, you hear Kenneth Hagin, etc. I found that I was hearing the same thing when I was listening to Eric Dykstra, minus the southern accent. I thought I was listening to Perry Noble. What was I hearing? A condescending condemning baseball bat being slammed across my head. I didn't hear any compassion or love or any refreshing word of God, even the scriptures that confront my sinfulness that caused me to have godly sorrow are coupled with God's mercy and grace when I repent. The scriptures don't leave me condemned, but give me hope and hope of the forgiveness of sins from Christ. The preaching of Eric Dykstra at all condemns and leaves you condemned condescends and leaves you unworthy of them. I, I hear a works doctrine to gain approval from the pastor. I hear a philosophy in opposition to the true word of God. I have listened to more word of faith preachers over the years, and I find it a little disconcerting that they sound the same. It is as if they all, they all have the same devilish spirit. Thanks again for exposing the dangers of the seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven movement. Thank you, Walter. Walter, thank you for the email. And, uh, yeah, it, you know... um. That's kind of the thing is is that um, the more I study the seeker sensitive uh, movement, um, there, there there's reasons why seeker sensitive purpose driven movement and the emerging and emergent church are actually kissing cousins. And you go, well, how can that be? Because uh, the seek, you know, the the you know, a lot of the guys in the seeker driven movement are at least are conservative in the sense that they affirm uh, the inerrancy of scripture. They they affirm the um the uh the cardinal doctrines of the historic christian faith well it, here's the thing is is that when you study the roots of where the seeker driven purpose driven church ecclesiastical form comes from um it was actually invented by peter drucker and um and what he did is he took the the model that he created for uh, us corporations and uh, and brought that into the church. Uh, when, you know, when I was doing my MBA at Pepperdine, what, you know, we read uh, essays and and works by Peter Drucker talking about purpose-driven corporations. The idea of a purpose-driven corporation is that's one that has a singular mission and vision, and everybody gets behind that, and everybody can feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Well, that's on purpose because uh, Peter Drucker was um, a, a Soren Kierkegaardian existentialist, and uh, also was influenced by the. Um, by the uh, the philosophical ideas of the of the socialist utopian um, um, uh, uh, Martin Buber, and uh, and so um, when Drucker invented the um, the uh, the the corporate model that he invented, he it was on purpose because he was trying to create 
autonomous communities that people can be a part of, and those autonomous communities would solve the problem of uh, people's existential angst, um, you know, as a result of living and breathing and and, and existing in the uh, modern world. And uh, what's interesting is is that um, Drucker in 1949 wrote an article uh, about um, you know uh, you know talking about Kierkegaardian existentialism and 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 the ideas that Kierkegaard was uh, kicking around. And you've you got to understand, in the uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, in Germany, uh, there was a lot of con- uh, a lot of conversation, a lot of philosophical speculation going on by the the you know the top thinkers of uh, of uh, German society regarding the role of the individual versus the community, and um, and um, Kierkegaard, at least the way Drucker in, um, interpreted Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard had the idea that um, that human beings in this world don't have an individual existence. There aren't individuals. There's only citizens, and um, and so in order for a person to have an individual ex- existence, that only occurs in the spiritual plane, in the spiritual realm, as a person stands before God. So. Uh, his interpretation of Kierkegaard was is that individuals only exist face to face with God in the spiritual realm, um, and uh, and in this you know on, in in this earthly place, um, there there aren't individuals. There's oh, there's uh, there's citizens and members of you know, people who are members of a community. And I think it's important to note when you look at the seeker driven movement, um, they don't say that they are a community of believers. Um, you know, over and again, these seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches, they'll say they are a community of small groups. So they're a community of smaller communities. So uh, the question is, where does the individual play into uh, the seeker-driven movement? So the idea is that there's actually a philosophy going on behind the scenes in the seeker-driven churches. And uh, the the reason why they're to- constantly talking about making a difference in the world, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, then you know that over and again we hear seeker-driven pastors talking about, um, you know, that somehow the gospel is going and making a difference in the world. Well, that comes directly from Drucker, and uh, and the idea there is is that Drucker really believes that the goal of the church is uh, is to help a person experience self-actualization uh, vis-a-vis Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and uh, and so. Um, we're dealing with a competing philosophy, and Martin, you you put your finger on it. You call it a philosophy, and it is. It's a competing philosophy. It's a form of existentialism, and it's mixed with some irrational kinds of kinds of things. But it is not theologically neutral. In fact, uh, the seeker-driven movement is philosophically hostile to the biblical gospel. It's philosophically hostile to the biblical gospel. In fact. Um, you know, I didn't plan on doing this, but um, I'm actually working on a um, I'm working on a journal article talking about this. And uh, let me do this. Hang on a second here. I need to find my notes. I, I want to read to you a New York Times article written about um, Peter Drucker from uh, November. It was published November nineteenth, two thousand and five, in the New York Times. And it was written by Peter Steinfels, and uh, the name of it is a, a, a Man's Spiritual Journey from Kierkegaard to General Motors. And, um, you know, in fact, let, let's talk about this. So let me read the article here. Uh, when Peter Drucker died eight days ago, so uh, Peter Drucker died in, uh, in 
no, er, November of 2005. The only specifically religious reference that appeared in most obituaries was guru, as in management guru. It was incidentally a term he despised. Many obituaries did mention that for decades, Mr. Drucker, who would have turned 96 today, devoted much of his en energy to analyzing and advising nonprofit organizations and charities. A few obituaries even mentioned churches. In fact, Mr. Drucker, uh, Drucker's uh, pre-science about the growing role of megachurches in American society could be placed alongside other insights those obituaries recorded, his anticipation of Japan's economic emergence, for example, or his attention to the rise of the knowledge workers and the uses of privatization. Religion, it turned out, had a great deal to do with Mr. Drucker's work. In 1989, the editors of Leadership, an evangelical quarterly for pastors, asked Drucker, quote, After a lifetime of studying management, why are you now turning your attention to the church? Mr. Drucker politely corrected them, quote, as far as I am concerned, it's the other way around, he said. I became interested in management because of my interest in religion and institution. Mr. Drucker was raised in Vienna in a family of intellectuals, a perfect incubator for the polymath he became. Jack ba Beatty, in his biography, The World According to Peter Drucker, passes on Mr. Drucker's description of, of the family Lutheranism as so liberal that it consisted of little more than a tree at Christmas and Bach cantatas at Easter. Then at age 19, Mr. Drucker came across the works of the theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and was bowled over. He studied Danish in order to read Kierkegaard's yet untranslated writings. From Kierkegaard to studying General Motors and the secrets of entrepreneurship may seem like a long stretch, but Kierkegaard's stark Christian vision spoke to Mr. Drucker's lifelong search for what he was observing while working in a Germany that was sliding into Nazism, an explanation of why, in a modern world of organizations and rapid change, freedom has so often been surrendered. Mr. Beatty notes the nakedly religious sentiment with which Mr. Drucker ended his 1959 uh, book, Landmarks of Tomorrow, quote, The individual, Mr. Drucker wrote, needs the return to spiritual values, for he can survive in the present human situation only by reaffirming that man is not just a biological and psychological being, but also a spiritual being, that is, creature, and existing for the purposes of his creator and subject to him. Such sentiments do not crop up often in the 35 books that Mr. Drucker published. In a 1999 profile in Christianity Today, Tim Stafford described Mr. Drucker as a practicing Episcopalian. An interview in Forbes exactly a year ago described him as a muted Episcopalian. One can almost hear other Episcopalians quipping, well, what other kind is there? As Mr. Stafford observed, Drucker hardly ever uses theological or biblical terminology to express himself, even if he is writing about something that easily fits theological categories. With some other management writers, this might be an accident, but Drucker is so well educated in philosophy and theology that it has, has to be a conscious choice. The point is that Drucker is not a man of pious gestures. So if Mr. Drucker's religious interests were not more widely noticed, it was due to his own reticence as much as to any antipathy to religion in the world of business or ideas. Still, once one becomes aware of his religions as well as his political outlook, 
It is not hard to see them as underpinnings for much of his thinking about the human obligations of management and the importance of community in an unstable world. His reticence disappeared, of course, when he was addressing religion and management directly. He tossed out ideas and opinions in his usual dizzying fashion, comparing Reformation-era Calvinists and Jesuits, declaring revolutions in the human spirit, obviously less concerned about being wrong than, than about not provoking thought. The future was with pastoral churches, he argued. Now, this is the point I want you This, All of this is all prelude to this section of the... Um, of this, this new story. This is where the real important stuff is. So watch this. The future was with pastoral churches, he argued, ones that put a higher priority on answering people's needs than perpetuating some specific doctrine or ritual or institutional structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like, what? <laughs> Let me see if I have this straight. Peter Drecker believed that the future was about pastoral churches that were not perpetuating specific doctrine or ritual or institutional structure. See, he was reinventing the church from the ground up. And specific, you know, doc, the idea of specific doctrines, he left those out on purpose. Okay, And who were his disciples? Who were the three men that uh, Peter Drucker discipled? Answer, Rick Warren. Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford of Leadership Network. Anyway, <clears throat> here's, a, here's a direct quote from, um, from Drucker. Quote, Very bluntly, people are dreadfully bored with theology, he told the editors of Leadership in 1989. And quote, I sympathize with them. I've always felt that, uh, felt that quite clearly the good Lord loves diversity. He created 2,500 species of flies if he had been... Like some theologians I know, there would have been only one right species of fly. You see what he's, you know, <laughs> yeah. So here's what's going on here, is that Drucker specifically set out in the late 80s, early 90s to reinvent the church and how it operates using the corporate model that he had set up in the 1950s. And the, that whole corporate model that he set up in the 1950s was specifically set up in order to alleviate existential angst. So here we've got a very interesting mix. We have Kierkegaardian existentialism mixed with irrational philosophy. And you're going, well, why do you say it's mixed with irrational philosophy? Because at this point, what, what, what only matters, what only matters is that you're meeting people's needs and theology and what's true doesn't matter doesn't matter if Jesus truly was born of a virgin. doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the grave bodily. All those truth claims are just getting in the way of what he thinks the church should be doing. So the, the next question that kind of came up to uh, Drucker in the article is, are pastors comparable to CEOs? Drucker's answer, well, up to a point, Mr. Drucker said. On the other hand, many organizations can be run on the army model, the command model, but the church cannot. It's a partnership. Sermons are important. Quote, you have 20 minutes to communicate the vision. That's a direct quote from Peter Drucker. You have 20 minutes to communicate the vision. He said, the fact that there is another world, but it completely penetrates, encompasses, encapsulates this world. Sometimes he criticized churches as being unconcerned about the world. At other times, he criticized them as emphasizing social programs to the ne neglect 
of a distinctly spiritual mission. Quote, the church is the only organization that is not entirely concerned with the kingdom of this earth, he said. We're the only one with another dimension, and for that reason, many good concerns around here are not our primary focus. One should not miss the we and the hour in those sentences. The we and the hour. Uh-huh. He freely admitted inconsistency, however, questioning whether some churches should really be the shelter in the shelter business, but praising Roman Catholics for running schools for non-Catholics in areas where public schools were wanting. The question was always, he said, can we make a real difference? Do you hear that? The question always was, can we make a real difference? Making a difference, this is a quote, this is a quote from Drucker, quote, making a difference in the way people see what's truly important in life was his ultimate test for both individuals and for churches. I don't know, he acknowledged, that you can measure this, certainly not by the bookkeeping of this world, but I'm reasonably sure that some sort of bookkeeping is going on someplace. In this world, he said, in a characteristic marriage of the visionary and the practical, the ones who best understand what can make a difference are the ones who are saints. That's the definition of a saint, Mr. Drucker said, somebody who sees reality. So, that kind of took advantage of the... So, Walter... all I ended up reading that article because of the fact that you talked about the philosophy and the word of faith movement. The reality is is that the seeker-driven movement is built off of a philosophy. It's built off of um, existentialism. It's built off of an irrational philosophy that denies the importance of transcendent truth, yet at the same time it embraces some transcendent truth. It's got a different gospel go and make a difference in the world. And somebody who's a saint is somebody who sees reality, not somebody who's been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And again, this, Peter Drucker is the man who's responsible for the whole seeker-driven, purpose-driven church movement. He's the one who took the disciples of Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford. And uh, and so what we're seeing in the the seeker-driven movement is is a is a philosophy that is hostile to the transcendent truth claims of the scriptures and sound biblical doctrine. Everything is being reduced down to solving existential angst and making a difference in the world so that people can experience self-actualization and and see reality, whatever that is. So yeah, that again, if you want to read that, the name of it is A Man's Spiritual Journey from Kierkegaard to General Motors, published in November of 2005. Worth looking into. Okay, we are up on our first break. In fact, we're actually past it because I'm off script at the moment. But uh, that's okay. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there. Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, the guys who claim that seeker-driven churches are, it's just methodology, are not telling you the truth. It's a methodology that's hooked to a philosophy. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, I've got a a Mark Driscoll segment that I want to do here. I do not have... uh, uh, music that I do when we discuss uh, Mark Driscoll. And uh, this is one that I, well, um, this kind of goes into the category of I'm not sure what to make of this. And, um, yeah, um, remember last week uh, we played the section from uh, Mark Driscoll. Yeah, kind of, you know, well, uh, Mike, well, anyway, yeah, we played that last week. We were talking about non-cessationists versus cessationists, and he was saying that cessationists are worldly, which, by the way, is a category fallacy. Um, cessationists are not saying that miracles are not possible. A cessationist would say absolutely miracles are possible. Uh, cessationists would say that that's not how God operates currently. They, you know, and you know, it, it, there's certain ways in which you can define cessationism. You know, there's hard-boiled version, and you know, the the, the poached version, and, and and so forth. But the idea is is this: is that um, you know, the apostolic gifts, uh, the the apostolic um, miracles. Uh, well, they don't need to be reproduced today. We have them all recorded in the scriptures, and so it's not normative, nor is it necessary. Uh, for God to be doing all the different kinds of miracles that he has done. Now, does that mean that God can't do miracles? No. Does that mean that God won't do miracles? No. It's just that that's kind of not normative. Anyway, um, uh, the uh, the guy who runs the Here I Blog website, hereiblog.com, well, he, he's um, uncovered some stuff from Mark Driscoll that has me kind of scratching my head, and I'm going to pass this along to you. And ask the question, um, what do you think? Um, yeah, so uh, here's Mark Driscoll talking about the fact that he gets prophetic dreams. Uh, he, here we go. I start getting prophetic dreams. God's showing me the future. Uh, a gift of discernment uh, kind of comes to the fore for me. Not all the time, but I can see somebody and I just know their story. I remember walking up to people and I'm one woman telling her, you know, last night, did your husband grab you by the throat, throw you up against the wall, threaten you, and tell you that if you told me that uh, he would kill you? She's crying. She says, how did you know? I said, 
I don't know. I see it. I see it like a film. Go up to another person. Hey, I believe that you were sexually abused when you were young. Did so-and-so do this to you when you were this age? And, you know, did a comforting spirit come to you at that point? And a, a demon masquerading as an angel of light. And they say, yeah, how did you know? I was like, I, I saw it. I start having dreams. I start seeing things. I start reading people's proverbial mail. I did not know what to do with any of this. Because in my theology, I'm a cessationist. That means that I believe that the supernatural essentially ceased in the early church. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. Um, Driscoll said this in 2008. So in 2008, he identified himself as a cessationist. Something's changed. Something's budged in his theology. Apparently his experience has um, caused him to rethink his theology. So so we don't have charismatic gifts today, and the demonic activity isn't real, especially for believers. Okay, that's clip number one. Here's clip number two. It's significantly longer. And again, I, yeah, I'm just putting this out here and asking you all the question, what do you make of this? Some people actually see things. I, this may be gift of discernment. On occasion, I see things. I see things. Uh, like I was meeting with one person, and they they didn't know this, but they were abused when they were a child. And I said, when you were a child, you were abused. This person did this to you, physically touched you this way. He said, how do you know? I said, I don't know. It's like I got a TV right here, and I'm seeing it. I said, no, that never happened. I said, well, go ask them. Go ask them if they actually did what I think they did, and I see that they did. And they went and asked this person, when I was a little kid, did you do this? And the person said, yeah, but you were only like a year or two old. How do you remember that? I said, oh, Pastor Mark told me. Okay. I'm not a guru. I'm not a freak. I don't talk about this. If I did talk about it, everybody would want to meet with me, and I'd end up like one of those guys on TV. But some of you... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he talking about it? Otherwise, we wouldn't be listening to him talking about it. I have this visual ability to see things. Um. Uh, there was one woman uh, I dealt with. She'd never told her husband that uh, she had committed adultery on him early in the relationship. I said, you know, she's sitting there with her husband. I said, you know, I think the root of all this, I think Satan has a foothold in your life because you've never told your husband about that really tall blonde guy that you met at the bar. And then you went back to the hotel and you laid on your back and you undressed yourself and he climbed on top of you and you had sex with him and snuggled up with him for a while. And deep down in your heart, uh, even though... You had just met him. You desired him because secretly he is the fantasy body type. I said, you remember that place? It was that cheap hotel with that certain colored bedspread. You, did, you had sex with the light on because you weren't ashamed and you wanted him to see you. You wanted to see him. She's just looking at me like, I said, you know, it was about 10 years ago. See everything. She says, she looks at her husband. He says, is that true? She says, yeah. He was 6'2", blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah. Some of you, when you're counseling, you will see things. I mean, you will, you will literally, gift of discernment, see things. I can't even explain it. It doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes your counselee, they will see things. There's, I found this with people. I was saying, okay, now let me, I'm going to ask the demon questions. You tell me what they say. They don't say anything. It's like, what are you hearing? They said, Nothing. I said, but I'm seeing stuff. I'm like, oh, oh, well, tell me, what's that? I'm seeing, you know, when I was little, my grandpa molested me. I didn't know that. I said, well, let's not assume it's true. Go ask your grandpa. Grandpa says, 
Yeah, when you were little, I molested you. Grandpa was assuming they'd be too young to remember. So he'd only molest grandkids up until a certain age. But they saw it. It's a supernatural. It's, it's, it's the whole other realm. It's like the matrix. You can take the blue pill, you can take the red pill. You go into this whole other world. And, and, and that's the way it works. So I say, tell me everything you hear, tell me everything you see, and sometimes I see things too. I see things too. I've seen women raped. I've seen children molested. I've seen people abused. I've seen people beaten. I've seen horrible things done. Horrible things done. I've seen children dedicated in occultic groups. Okay. <clears throat> All right. I, I got to pause here for a second. This is really graphic, and um, he's describing these things in counseling sessions. Now, here's where I'm going, hmm, I've got a problem with this, and, and here's why. Because um, it's the gospel, not psychological counseling that heals people for real. Okay? Um, and, you know, back in the day, uh, people would visit their pastor to confess their sins, and that wasn't the end of it. The most important part of that was to hear the absolution, to hear that Christ bled and died for those sins. What Driscoll is describing here is, well, um, something that seems like it's a competing form of the gospel, psychology in this sense. And and here's the deal. I'm not... Uh, I got to be real careful. There's a place for counselors and stuff like that, but something is just off here. And this is really graphic. And this is really, um, I immediately I'm ask, I'm, you know, I want to ask the question: When was the gospel applied to these situations? When did they get to hear that Christ bled and died for them for these sins? Um, yeah, this is uh, again. This is you know. And by the way, um. Uh, I'm not sure if this is God the Holy Spirit that's revealing this or if we're the, 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 it's, it's a demonic source at this point that's, re- that's revealing this. Because um, demons are fully aware of all of these sins that have gone on in the past. They are fully cognizant of it and capable of, um, um, well, dredging it all up, if you know what I mean. So, again, what my, these are all in counseling sessions that he says that this is happening and immediately my question is, where's the gospel in all of this? Seems like the focus is getting put on evil rather than on the cross. You understand what I'm saying? Groups and demons come upon them as an infant by invitation. And I wasn't present for any of it, but I've seen it visibly. Upon occasion, when I get up to preach, I'll see, just like a screen in front of me, I'll see somebody get raped or abused. And then I'll track them down and say, look, I had this vision. Let me tell you about it. All true. One I had, I was sitting in my office at the old uh, Earl building. This gal walks by, nice gal, member of the church. This one of the church was small. And it was just like a TV was there. And I saw the night before, her husband threw her up against the wall, had her by the throat, was physically violent with her. And she said, that's it. I'm telling the pastors. And he said, if you do, I'll kill you. He was a very physically abusive man. She was walking by and I just saw it. It's like a TV. I said, hey, come here for a second. I said, last night, did your husband throw you up against the wall and have you by the throat, physically assault you and tell you if you told anyone that he would kill you? And she just starts bawling. 
She says, how did you know? I said, Jesus told me. Call the guy on the phone. Hey, I need you to come to the office. Didn't give him any clue. Comes in. I said, dude, what'd you do to your wife last night? Why'd you do this? Why'd you throw her against the wall? And he gets very angry. They're sitting on the couch. He says, why did you tell him? I said, she didn't. Jesus did. So there you go. Um, hmm. Just, um, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, it just, well, I'll, I'll be blunt. It Something just seems off. Can't put my finger on it quite yet, but something seems like it's just off. Like really, really off, and I can't put my finger on it. What do you think? You know, again, my, my, my question is, where is repentance and the forgiveness of sins? You know, over and again, I've seen throughout, you know, the church's history, and especially in recent history, that people have had their eyes taken off of Christ by the so-called supernatural. And here's the deal, is that um, I'm not saying that Driscoll didn't have these experiences. I you know, I, what I'm hearing from him sounds like these are legitimate experiences. My question is, are these the experiences grounded and rooted and have their origin in God, the Holy Spirit, or in some other place? Um, because, you know, um, where Driscoll is drifting, because obviously there's a difference between what he believed in 2008 and what he believes now, the direction he's drifting has me concerned, has me deeply concerned. And, um, you know, I, I, believe me, I, I know that, you know, that Satan can create experiences that are rather, um, well, engulfing, if you would. Um, but, uh, again, my question is, where is Christ and him crucified for our sins and all of this? Is that really the center of this stuff? If, if not, then, um, you, we, um, well, be praying for Mark Driscoll. That's all I can say at this point. Again, I don't, I'm not sure what to make of it. What do you make of it? Email me. I'd love to get your feedback. Okay, one last thing before we go into the break. The, uh, the well, actually, two two things real quick. Because uh, we're you know, the, the sermon that we're reviewing today is actually pretty short. So um, what we'll do here is I'm going to read the Al Mohler piece on evangelicals and the gay moral agenda, and then I'm also going to read this AP story. <laughs> about what uh, Matthew Harrison, the the president of the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has done, and which makes me very proud that I have this guy as the president of of the uh, church denomination that I am a member of. Al Muller, on his uh, blog, writes, um, The Christian church has faced no shortage of challenges in its 2,000-year history, but now it's facing a challenge that is shaking its foundations. The challenge? Homosexuality. Uh, to many onlookers, this seems strange or even tragic. Why can't Christians just join the revolution? And make, mo- make no mistake, it is a moral revolution. A philosopher, uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah of Princeton University, demonstrated in his recent book, The Honor Code, moral revolutions generally happen over a long period of time. But this is hardly the case with the, swift, uh, the shift that we've witnessed in the question of homosexuality. In less than a single generation, homosexuality has gone from something almost universally understood to be sinful to something now declared to be the moral equivalent of heterosexuality and deserving of both legal protection and public encouragement. Theo Hobson, a British theologian, has argued that this is not just the waning of a taboo. Instead, it is a moral inversion that has left those holding the old morality now accused of nothing less than 
moral deficiency. The liberal churches and denominations have an easy way out of this predicament. They simply accommodate themselves to the new moral reality. By now, the pattern is clear. These churches debate the issue with conservatives arguing to retain the older morality and liberals arguing that churches must adapt the new one. Eventually, the liberals win and the conservatives lose. Next, the denomination ordains openly gay candidates or decides to bless same-sex unions. This is a route that evangelical Christians committed to the full authority of the Bible cannot take. Since we believe the Bible is God's revealed word, we cannot accommodate ourselves to this new morality. We cannot pretend as if we do not know that the Bible clearly teaches that all homosexual acts are sinful. It is all human sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage. We believe that God has revealed a pattern for human sexuality that not only points the way to holiness but true happiness. Thus, we cannot accept the seductive arguments that the liberal churches so readily adopt. The fact that same-sex marriage is now a legal reality in several states means that we must further stipulate that we are bound by Scripture to define marriage as the union of one man and one woman and nothing else. We do so knowing that most Americans once shared the same moral assumptions, but that a new world is coming fast. I think it's already here. We do not have to read the polls and surveys. All we need to do is talk to our neighbors or listen to the cultural chatter. In this most awkward cultural predicament, evangelicals must be excruciatingly clear that we do not speak about the sinfulness of homosexuality as if we have no sin. As a matter of fact, it is precisely precisely because we have come to know ourselves as sinners and of our need for a Savior that we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Our greatest fear is not that homosexuality will be normalized and accepted, but that homosexuals will not come to know of their own need for Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. This is not a concern that is easily expressed in sound bites, but it is what we truly believe. It is now abundantly clear that evangelicals have failed in so many ways to meet this challenge. We have often spoken about homosexuality in ways that are crude and simplistic. We have failed to take account of how tenaciously sexuality comes to define us as human beings. We have failed to see the challenge of homosexuality as a gospel issue. We are the ones, after all, who are supposed to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only remedy for sin, starting with our own. We have demonstrated our own form of homophobia, not in the way that activists have used that word, but in the sense that we have been afraid to face this issue where it is most difficult face-to-face. My hope is that evangelicals are ready now to take on this challenge in a new and more faithful way. We really have no choice, for we are talking about our own brothers and sisters, our own friends and neighbors, or maybe the young person in the next pew. There is no escaping the fact that we are living in the midst of a moral revolution, and yet this is not the world around us that is being tested so much as the believing church. We are about to find out just how much we believe the gospel we so eagerly preach, and he's absolutely spot on. Now, talking about the issue of homosexuality, uh, here's an Associated Press news story. Headline reads, Lutherans split over gays in the Bible shakes up multi-billion dollar social services network. Okay, this was uh, from last week. Um, New York, one of the largest social service networks in the United States, working in areas ranging from adoption to disaster relief, faces a shakeup because of Lutheran divisions over the Bible and homosexuality. The Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, a theologically conservative denomination, said Wednesday that direct work with its larger and more liberal counterpart, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, has become difficult 
if not impossible, because of doctrinal conflicts, including the 2009 decision by liberal Lutherans to lift barriers for ordaining gays and lesbians. Neither denomination would discuss the potential financial impact Wednesday. Many Lutherans-affiliated agencies received substantial state and federal grants that would not be directly affected by any split. However, similar to Catholic charities, Lutheran agencies are some of the biggest service providers in their communities. Just one of the joint Lutheran agencies, Lutheran Services in America, said on its website that it encompasses more than 300 health and human service organizations with a combined annual budget of more than $16 billion. Quote, we recognize that this is a difficult issue. It's complicated, said the Reverend Herb Muller, first vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, based in St. Louis. We're trying to take a nuanced and caring approach to all of these situations that's also faithful to what the Bible teaches on these issues. The Reverend Donald McCoy, an ecumenical officer for the Chicago-based Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, said, We are deeply concerned about the ministries of care and that may be challenged by the recent action of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the 2.3% million-member Missouri Synod, has been studying the issue for more than a year through its Committee on Theology and Church Relations. This week, the panel issued a 15-page document of guidelines for church, churches, congregations, and ministries deciding whether they should cut off any direct joint work with the Chicago-based Lutherans. The only immediate announced a break was for the Missouri Synod to stop its decades-old practice of training military chaplains with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The president of the Missouri Synod, the, uh, Reverend Matthew Harrison, said that a statement that the decision affects effective next year was based on the ELCA decision on gay ordination and on the military's plan to repeal the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. However, the guidelines for evaluating joint relationships made, in, in cl- made it clear that cooperative work in many of the agencies is likely to end. Missouri Synod... Uh, theology committee said members of the denomination should examine whether joint cooperative agencies, one, adopt operational principles, alien or contrary to scripture, hire a staff or leader whose lifestyle is scandalous or openly and unrepentantly sinful, have board members overseeing an agency who become conflicted because of differing beliefs, have leaders or staff who advocate policies contrary to the Christian faith. The committee used its most direct language to discuss the future of its core core of chaplains who work outside of the military in nursing homes and hospitals and on college campuses, among other assignments. The ELCA's current theological course presents serious theological challenges to any continued cooperation in endorsement procedures, according to the Missouri Senate report. The tangle of Lutheran agencies is the, is the main, is mainly the result of decades of splits and mergers among Lutherans in the United States. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, with about 4.5 million members, was formed from a merger of four church bodies with Danish, Finnish, German, and Swedish backgrounds. Mueller said in an interview that 18 of the 120 recognized service organizations of the Missouri uh, Synod cooperate in some way with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Mueller said that agencies would be evaluated on a case-by-case basis in a process that could take months. So here's the deal. I mean, um, it's not the Missouri Synod who's drifted away from what God's Word teaches. It's the ELCA. And they've drifted to the point where it's obvious that we cannot continue to uh, work with them in many ways. And, um, um, you know, I think Matthew Harrison and the folks there uh, that are currently in charge of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate are doing the right thing because we have got to be faithful to God's Word because ultimately this is a gospel issue, as Dr. Muller pointed out. This is a gospel issue. What we're dealing with here is the ability to look a homosexual dead in the eye and say, listen, what you're doing is a sin. 
And it's a sin that will send you to hell. And I'm not speaking to as somebody who is righteous in and of himself, but as somebody who has been forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. You need to repent and be forgiven. It's un, it, it, strange days that we live in, but uh, more and more of these types of uh, splits are, well, they're inevitable as uh, mainline liberal denominations continue to wander away from what the Bible so clearly teaches. And no Christian, no Christian, no person who calls themselves a Christian has the right to attack, demean, impugn, and deconstruct God's word and put away those parts that, well, they just don't find to be culturally relevant or, you know, put them out of step with the the greater culture. We're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, including the nation we currently live in. Okay, we are up on our second break, and uh, when we get back, we're going to be listening to a good sermon. Yeah, a good sermon. So if uh, you like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful 
book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be doing a good sermon review today. This is an example of a Christ-centered sermon with a biblical text that everybody seems to twist into a man-centered thing. Always focusing on poor Peter. You know, look at Peter. He, the, You need to step out of the boat. If you want to walk on the water, you got to do what he did. He, you've got to have that kind of audacious faith. Well, that's not what you're going to hear from Jeremy Rohde today. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Here we go. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. The Reverend Jeremy Rohde presiding. He'll be a Dr. Rohde soon enough. The name of the sermon is, It is I, Do Not Be Afraid. The text is taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. I will read them shortly. Now, I want you to pay real close attention. If you've, if you've listened to any sermons we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith from this biblical text, this is a favorite text of evangelicals and seeker-driven pastors and those guys, and they always make it about Peter, <laughs> not Jeremy Rohde. Now, this is an example of what a Christ-centered sermon from this text sounds like. And he even engages in a little bit of uh, homiletical liberty, if you would, talking, you know, comparing the storms of your life to the storm on the sea there. But don't be, don't, don't get nervous about that because he gets off of that pretty quick and gets into the biblical text. And again, this sermon will feel like it's upside down, backwards, and inside out compared to every sermon you've ever heard on this text. And this is a good thing. Ah, sorry, I got distracted by the music. Now, uh, let me kill the music here. Now, before we, uh, before we, uh, before I, yeah, I get into the sermon proper, it's actually a pretty short sermon. Um, let me first read for you the text that makes up the basis for the sermon. It's uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter fourteen, verses twenty-two through thirty-three. I read from the ESV. Here's what it says: Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That for, that text forms the basis of the sermon by the Reverend Jeremy Rohde. It is entitled, It is I, Do Not Be Afraid. Here we go. Grace to you and peace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The same Lord and Savior who came to his disciples in the midst of the storm now comes to us in the midst of these difficult times. Where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, there am I among them. What he said to his disciples on that stormy night, he also says to you, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. These are words that we need to hear. Now watch what he does here. Watch what he does. We're almost, it's like he almost begins with application. Very interesting format that he's using for this sermon. But what, what he's saying is spot on, and it's not a torturing of the text. Watch what he does. It's amazing. Our Lord's word to us is so powerful that we are drawn in to his speaking. Here we are with dry ground under our feet. And yet we know exactly what it is to have the stormy seas of this life raging around us a long way from the safety of the shore. Here we are in the calm and still of this sanctuary. And yet in our lives we feel as though beaten and battered by waves. Here we are, sheltered by four walls and a roof. And yet at work and at home, we feel as though we are rowing against a wind that is constantly contrary to us. Our bodies are tired. Our wills are tested. Our hands have grown cold and calloused from working the oars. Outside this morning... A new day dawns, but there's darkness in the world, isn't there? The fourth watch of the night covers the earth. It's no wonder why we identify so deeply with those cold and tired disciples rowing against the storm. In fact, our Lord Jesus wouldn't have it any other way. He would have you see that just as he drew near to them, so this day he draws near to you. The Lord has never been one to desert his people, even when they deserved it. In fact, the entire Bible and all of history behind it testify to the opposite. Where there is sin, where there is trouble, the Lord Jesus draws near to forgive, to give strength. In the garden, when two sinners tremble and the good creation begins to decay around them, he comes near to them in the cool of the day. In the wilderness, where an exiled killer 
wanders alone. He draws near to him in a burning bush. On a stormy sea where twelve disciples are in great peril, he draws near to them, his feet upon the waves. And even to you, this very day, he draws near, setting his table in your midst. From his lips there is holy absolution for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And into your lips he places his very body and blood. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. We might imagine that the disciples were quite terrified by that storm, and maybe they were. But if you listen closely to God's word, he never actually mentions that they were terrified by the wind or the waves, by the darkness or the distance. Only one thing in particular terrifies them. And that, curiously enough, is the sight of Jesus walking toward them. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The English doesn't quite capture the full sense of what Jesus says. In Greek he says, Ego I me, which is so much closer to I am. I am. This is no ghost. This is God Himself, God in the flesh, walking on the sea. By word and by deed, Jesus is proving to His disciples exactly who He is. And by this very same word and deed, He makes Himself known to you. He who walks on the waves is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the one who comes to you in the midst of the storm is true God and true man, becoming as you are, so that he might bear your sins and your punishments once and for all on his cross? Do you believe in him? Not only in the big things, but in the small. Do you believe when he says to you, Take heart, it is I, Do not be afraid. In that moment as he sat in the boat, Peter heard these words of Jesus, and he did believe. He believed with such an innocent and childlike faith that he said a rather remarkable thing. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But 
when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Whether it was wise or not for Peter to get out of that boat in the first place is up for debate. Countless sermons today will challenge Christians to take a leap of faith and get out of the boat for Jesus. But the simple fact is that Peter, whose name means rock, sank like one. The truth is, it wouldn't be any different for you or for me. Like Peter... We believe, sometimes with an innocent and childlike faith. But then, what happens? Real life catches up with us, and suddenly, Jesus doesn't seem so real anymore. We see the winds blowing and the waves crashing around us. We see the dangers and the perils of a world that is out of our control. And it's all so real. We waver. We doubt. We sink. The Lord might well say to me or to you, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? If we listen carefully, God tells us why Peter doubted. He got out of that boat and started walking toward Jesus But then he saw the wind. He was afraid, and he began to sink. For just a split second, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. He took his eyes off of the object of his faith. Instead of looking at Jesus, he saw the wind tossing the waves all about him. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Because you take your eyes off Jesus. And you look at the wind that tosses the waves all around you. You take your eyes off Jesus for a split second. And you listen to the gloom and the doom on the news. And you start to sink. You take your eyes off Jesus for a split second and give your attention to the ways that people have wronged you, to the storms in your family, in your workplace, and you start to sink. You take your eyes off Jesus for just a split second and you start thinking about your sin, present and past. The winds of temptation that have blown you into hatred of those leaders that God has given. Into evil conversations about others. Into shameful and defiling lusts. Into stealing from God or cheating your neighbor. The winds blow. You take your eyes off Jesus for just a second. And you start to sink. What is there left for you to do? Cry out, just as Peter did. Lord, save me. And as Jesus once reached out his hand to save his sinking friend, 
all the more he stretches out his hand of salvation and grabs hold of you. For Peter, being saved meant Jesus dragging him sopping wet back onto the boat. And for you, being saved means Jesus dragging you sopping wet from the baptismal font back into the boat that is his church. He saves you. There's one thing certain. You can't save yourself. So he takes your salvation into his all-powerful hands. The very hands that reached out for Peter are stretched out on the cross for you and for your salvation. The very feet that brought Jesus over the waves to his disciples are pierced to the cross for you and for your salvation. Even though he is true God, he gives himself into death for you. Or rather, because he is true God, he gives himself into death for you. Because in Jesus we see who God really is. There on the cross, He took all your sins from you. Whatever evil you have spoken, He took into His own mouth. Whatever shameful and defiling things you have done, He took into His own flesh. Whatever you have stolen, He has stolen all guilt From you. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and your Lord Jesus so loves you that he wouldn't have it any other way. Lord, save me. That's my plea, and it's yours. And just as easily as our Lord and Savior pulled Peter up from the raging sea, so too he will pull you and all who believe in him up from the very grave itself. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, he says, for no one will snatch them out of my hand. When our eyes wander to any place other than Jesus, sin terrifies and death terrifies. But with our eyes on Jesus, sin and death are taken away. And we boldly confess with one voice, I look for the resurrection of the dead. Have the wind and the wave caused you to doubt, caused you to sink. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Take heart, he says. It is I. Do not be afraid. Amen. Amen. You see what I mean? That was all about Jesus. It wasn't about you having enough courage to walk on the water. And I love how Jeremy just so quickly dismissed that while he sank like a stone. That, like, didn't work out so well for him. 
But there at the end, it was all about Jesus. There in the middle, it was all about Jesus. There in the beginning, it was all about Jesus. That's what it means to have a Christ-centered sermon. The text was all about Jesus. The sermon was all about Jesus and pointing you to him, focusing on what Christ has done and does for you. Big difference. Big, big difference. Completely different way of handling the text. In fact, it was backwards, upside down, and inside out to the normal preaching that we hear in the bad sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, not tomorrow, Monday, till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.